Uh, let's just bow our hearts if we can and just pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we have this privilege and this opportunity to meet together in this way, to be able to study together. But Lord, we don't want to just learn things. We don't want to just uh, add to academic knowledge, Father. We want to grow in knowledge and in grace. Lord, we want to be challenged spiritually to move from where we have been to, Lord, where you would have us be. Uh, and Lord, of course, we know that we should be ultimately transformed into the likeness of Christ. And David prayed, uh, Lord, that uh, great prayer, um, how he longed to be transformed when he knew that he would wait, one day wake in the likeness of his Messiah who was to come. And Lord, we pray that for each one of us, that you would continue the work you've begun as your word says you will and transform us, Lord, by the renewing of our minds. Uh, Lord, just work in our hearts. Lord, create in us clean hearts, we pray. Uh, Father, as your word also says, see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way of everlasting. We ask these things this morning and this your blessing upon this time of study in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are carrying on our study in the book of James. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, please turn to the book of James. We are still in chapter one, and I'm just going to give you a quick uh, refresh of some of the things that we mentioned and talked about last week. So, uh, first of all, um, if we look at the, the layout of the New Testament, we see this group of eight epistles known as typically the Hebrew Christian epistles. Hebrews we've just studied as a fellowship, obviously written to the Jewish believers. And the, again, we need to be mindful that the early church started off as Jews. It, the, the church was exclusively Jewish to start with. Uh, of course, we get to about Acts 10, and that's when the door opens to the Gentiles. Paul, uh, sorry, Peter is sent to Cornelius. Um, un unaware really why he's going. I, I had this vision of the sheet, doesn't fully understand it, thinks initially it's something to do with just eating all different types of food now. Gets to Cornelius, uh, I, I think it's one of the most comical moments in scripture actually, because you have Peter standing there and Cornelius standing there, no doubt a load of people gathered around, and Peter's looking at Cornelius thinking, okay, why have you asked me to come and speak to you? And Cornelius is there thinking, why have you come to speak to me? And it's almost this, this embarrassed standoff for a moment, until Peter suddenly clicks why he's there. The Lord has called him to speak to this Gentile who's been very uh, benevolent to Israel and been a blessing to the nation. Uh, and the fact that now the gospel is to go to the Gentiles, the ones that Israel previously had looked on as just being fueled for the fires of hell uh, and so on. Now God is saying, no, no, as the promise was made in Abraham, the gospel is going to go to all nations. In, in Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In the book of Ephesians, this is really laid out very, very clearly that this mystery that was hidden in the ages past has now been allowed to be revealed. And that is that God has created the church, this church, the church of Jesus Christ, uh, that he is the head of, that we are the body, and that whether you are Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female, we all come together in this incredible assembly to the glory of God, that we will ultimately be the bride of Christ. It's a wonderful picture that we have through scripture. So um, these letters written to Hebrews, of course, are just as applicable to Gentiles. Uh, it doesn't mean that these don't apply to us. And in fact, particularly as we look at James, we see a, a huge amount of practical instruction given to us as we go through. As we said last week, James, uh, the half brother of Jesus, 
grew up in the house with him. Uh, must have been an incredible situation. You know, Jesus could have gone into any family, uh, could have been part of any uh, family setup. He could have been an only child, but he chose and God had ordained that he become part of this family with a number of siblings. We'll come back to that in a second. But the early church were very much of the opinion that, that James um, was the, the son of Mary and Joseph, uh, Jerome, Augustine, and so on could make, make those kind of confirmations. But of course, we, we know from scripture matthew 12 46 and you can see the other scriptures there on the screen make it very clear that this half brother of jesus uh was a key uh instrument that the lord used in the early church but of course before the resurrection james wasn't a believer james didn't have that confidence in his brother he, he just saw him as some uh, maybe radical kind of religious leader but didn't understand the mission that Jesus was on, clearly didn't understand that he was God manifest in the flesh. Of course, you can imagine his surprise, his shock afterwards, because we know from 1 Corinthians fifteen seven that after the resurrection, Jesus appears to a number of people. Of course, we have Mary in the garden, and Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room. But we're told that very specifically, the Lord appeared to James. What must that have been like as James is confronted by, as far as he was concerned, his older brother, but now risen from the dead and suddenly everything's changed. You know, and for many, Jesus is just a character, a good person, somebody who has said lots of interesting and, and, and good words. You know, what a transformation when you come to realize that Jesus Christ is God. And that's where James was at. You know, it's a position that many people, as we come to faith in Jesus, find ourselves just where James was. So James writes from a position of experience, a position of knowledge, a position of understanding what it's like not to recognize who Jesus is, but then to come to that place of realizing. And James's argument, and we'll see it throughout this book, is one consistently of, so because we now know who he is, your life should be radically different. And that really is a great summary of the, of the book of James. So James, of course, becomes a, a very instrumental part of the church, as we said a moment ago, becomes head of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, we see that very much in Acts 15, as James is uh, leading this council, as they're discussing the whole question of, well, what about Gentiles? Uh, are they to be allowed to be part of the church? And of course, the conclusion is very much, yes, they are. We know from 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, that James was married. We also know that when Peter was released from prison, uh, of all the people he wanted to inform, James was one of the top of the list there uh, in Acts twelve seventeen, We know that Paul uh, went to see James when he arrived in Jerusalem, Galatians 1, 18 and Acts 21. We see reference to that. Uh, and also that his name was used as a, a kind of uh, banner of authority when these Judaizers come down to Antioch. And to start causing trouble, but they start to say that they've come from James as if that gave them some credence and credibility. Uh, well, of course, they were using James's name without his authority. Um, but it just shows that the, James's position uh, was one that was quite respected within the early church community. Just going back to the whole idea of the family um, that Jesus was part of, that James, of course, uh, grew up in. Jesus, the oldest in the family. We know that obviously from scripture. Uh, and then Jesus. Um, we know from Matthew 13, the scripture on the screen there, uh, where we read there, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James? 
and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And Judah, by the way, that's the, the individual who wrote the epistle of Jude. Uh, we may, by God's grace, uh, get to that in a short while. Uh, and his sisters, plural, are they not all with us? So we know there's at least a family of seven children. Jesus chose to grow up in this environment. And Jesus, you know, we, we know because of um, the time of Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph bring these two turtle doves. They couldn't afford to bring anything more than that. Uh, that was what you would bring if you were poor and you couldn't afford to bring a lamb or whatever else. So we know that they weren't living in a nice kind of eight bedroom apartment or, or house in Galilee or on the shore of Galilee or wherever. You know, the family weren't particularly wealthy and no doubt they were sharing rooms and quite probably James would have been sharing a room with Jesus as they were growing up. You know, listening to his older brother speak is just as they're going through their, their, you know, formative years. And as a teenager growing up, looking up to his older brother, Jesus. And being challenged, no doubt, by the way that Jesus conducted himself. Uh, we know that Jesus without, was without sin. That means Joseph and Mary never needed to tell him off for doing anything wrong. Now, that must have been a challenge for James um, to see a, a brother that never made a mistake. What a high standard to try and follow. Maybe it, it speaks a little bit of why his brethren uh, didn't accept who he was. Maybe there was a little bit of antagonism toward Jesus because of his perfection. Um, but nevertheless, all these things would have stuck in James's mind. I mean, I'm sure all of you can think back to your own childhoods. And for those of you who have siblings, you know, you know, those kind of conversations and the things that you go through, um, the, the times you spend together, they, 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 they change you, they shape you, they mold you for life uh, and they build and shape relationships. Well, of course, James is right in that position. Well, we know again, we looked at this last, last week briefly, um, that this epistle was written within 10 years of the resurrection. These things were still very fresh. I mean, you think back 10 years ago. I mean, we can still remember events for, from, you know, a decade ago quite clearly, quite, quite well. And these things would have really stayed in James's mind. All his childhood and particularly then the events of the resurrection or the crucifixion and the resurrection and everything that then followed. And, you know, the church being, um, born as it were on the day of Pentecost. James would have been there at that point. And then seeing, you know, the church grow and all these incredible things taking place. Well, as we go into this again, we said this last week, but just to remind you, James shows the importance of conduct over merely just a creed and the importance of our behavior over just belief and the importance of deed over doctrine. And we'll talk about that a little bit more this morning. And James's epistle, we said, is intensely practical for the Christian growing in knowledge and grace. There's also a fitting follow-on, as we said last week, from Hebrews. Hebrews gives us the kind of the why we should um, of, of the Christian living, because it speaks about the hope that we have, all that's ahead of us. It speaks about how great Jesus is, and it speaks again about our inheritance so much. Uh, James then kind of gives us the how. Okay, so how are we live as Christians? And James really nails this for us. <clears throat> In the... Uh, book itself in these five short chapters that we have, uh, relatively speaking, uh, we see this opening in the first, uh, portion of chapter one, most as we covered last week, those outward trials that we experience and then comparing that to the inward temptations, two very different things. The trials we get very much are ordained of God for our learning and our growth that we will be complete, but the temptations are something that come from within and we'll conclude that in a second. And then we go on to the uh, remainder of the, the chapter again, our response to the word of God. 
And then in chapter two, our response to social distinctions. That's going to be amplified even more than it has been highlighted already in chapter one, but we'll see more of that in chapter two. And again, the evidence that good works must accompany genuine faith. If your faith is genuine, well, there has to be some outward sign of that. Then, of course, the importance of self-control for a believer is in chapter three, very much laid out. And we're going to get to the whole idea again of the uh, the tongue and how important the tongue is and how influential the tongue can be. So, again, we'll talk about that. And then concluding, chapter four speaks about our relationship to the world. And then finally, the, the importance of prayer in a believer's life. So we're, those are kind of the things we're, we're going to look at. Um, we said already that James used nature to illustrate, illustrate spiritual truth. We've already seen a number of examples of this, um, but over 30 times in these five short chapters, James uses natural examples to try and help us to understand what he's trying to communicate to us. And there's obviously a number of references to the law, speaking of the perfect law, the royal law, the law of liberty, we'll see uh, coming up soon as well. Uh, again, James doesn't teach his readers um, that uh, we need uh, to be under the law, um, but rather um, that his readers are under law for salvation or a rule of life. In other words, the law is there to give us good instruction, practical guidance. Uh, it doesn't save us, but it does give us a good framework in which to walk and live. Um, rather, the portions of the law, again, that are cited here are instructions in righteousness for those who are under grace. The key words again, brethren, 15 times is used, faith 15 times, works uh, 13 times referred to, and wisdom four times. Uh, and it's been said, most um, commentators agree, that it's the most most authoritarian letter in the New Testament. And they say that because James is continually issuing instructions. Uh, in these 108 verses, we've got some 50 or so direct imperatives, commands in, in the Greek, uh, where James is stating, do this, do this, do this, or don't do this, don't do this. And you kind of understand a little bit about as he was growing up and listening to Jesus. I mean, Jesus would no doubt would have been very direct. I mean, scripture tells us that your yes should be yes, your no should be no. Jesus wouldn't have uh, beat around the bush. We see the way he speaks to the Pharisees, the religious leaders and so on. And no doubt even in his family, in those settings, Jesus would have been very open, very direct, very honest. And James seemingly picks up on that. That There's no messing around with James. He goes straight to the point. He's not worried about offending people because there's something much bigger at stake here than just people's feelings or emotions or whatever. He's trying to get to the root of our, our hearts and our minds to get us really thinking about what it means to be a believer. So it's a great challenge to us. And we should go, to this, go into this book with a very open mind, open heart, because... This is like open heart surgery for us. The Lord is really going to dig in and touch some nerves in our hearts. And, but we need to be willing to allow the Lord to do that. And James, again, the instrument that God is using, like a scalpel, very, very sharp, uh, very precise in the things that he writes to us. So uh, let me just give you a quick overview then of the verses we looked at last week. The first five verses, it's really all about how you handle life's trials. Again, as a follower of Christ, uh, don't you realize that you are part of, of your heavenly brother's training program for you. Again, so she can is all joy. That's what we're told. James recognized that his heavenly brother, the one that he'd grown up with, his brother according to the flesh, was allowing him and had allowed him to go through trials. Why? To make him complete. And James is saying, look, we are part of the same family now. You know, this isn't, he, he never um, speaks of his own importance or his own relationship as standing him apart from other believers. 
I mean, he, he could have done, uh, of course, it wouldn't have been appropriate, but he could have done that. Spoke of the fact that, well, Jesus was my brother, therefore you must listen to me. No, he doesn't do that. He speaks of us all as brethren. Again, that key word, 15 times he uses that phrase. But again, that the things that Jesus allows us to go through, our heavenly brother, is for our learning, our training. The next section from verse 6 to 8 is really a question about how do you pray? You know, when you pray, do you pray in faith? We were speaking a little bit earlier about how important prayer is. And particularly when we pray for each other, you know, we mustn't pray doubting. We're to pray believing and trusting God. Again, it speaks all of this is about that trust that, you know, James knew his brother and clearly he implicitly trusted him. As I said last week, James um, was referred to in the, some of the early church writers as old camel knees. Uh, apparently, James spent so much of his time on his knees praying, praying for his brethren, praying for the church, praying for the Jews just wanted to talk to his brother, wanted to be in constant communication. And we're told, Paul tells us that we should pray without ceasing. Well, James is a great example of that. And of course, possibly more than anybody, James knew the one he was praying to. He'd grown up with him. He knew he could trust Jesus. Jesus would never have let James down in their, their childhood or in their early life together. And so James now is saying to us, look, I know who we're praying to and we can trust him. And that's the admonition that he passes on to us, that when we pray, we should pray in faith, not not driven or tossed to and fro, not being double minded, uh, as he says, verse eight of chapter one. So we then go on in verse nine to 11 about how do we treat others? This is another challenge that James brings. You know, don't let your opinion of others be dictated by their appearance. Of course, God looks at the heart, not at the outward appearance. Sadly for us, we tend to look at the outward appearance and we make our judgments about people, the way that people are dressed, the way that they present themselves. You know, but the heart is where the real issue is. That, that's the real thing that counts. And of course, that's the way God looks at us. And James is saying that's how we should be. And particularly, he says, within the church, if somebody comes into our, our congregation, our assembly as believers, how do we treat them? Do we, do we assess them based upon what we perceive to be their wealth or even worse, how we think they may be of a benefit to us personally? No, no, that's not how we should view people. And we've seen, of course, in the, in the letters to the Hebrews, how many have entertained angels unawares. We need to be very careful how we treat others and treat people fairly and the same, looking at them through God's eyes. And then we got up to verse 15, which is really looking at how do we deal with temptation? And once again, we can't blame others. Temptations, we're told, very clearly come from within. Again, James had lived with one who had never yielded to temptation and now knew firsthand that Jesus is able to impart that same grace and strength in each one of us to enable us to become overcomers. And so much of the New Testament has this theme of us overcoming and there's rewards associated with it. Again, uh, you know, this reward promised to all those who overcome. Now, again, let me just remind you what we said last week. The temptations will come. You will be tempted. Okay, so don't be surprised when you're tempted. Jesus himself was tempted, okay? Um, but a, blem- a, a blessing is promised if we endure temptation. And, of course, we're expected to endure. God, we're told, will always make a way out of temptations for us. And again, God is not the source of temptations. Very, very clear in Scripture. Um, so note that they are different from the trials that we go through. The trials are things that God allows in our lives. Temptations are things that come from within. And, and it's important to note also that the devil's not the primary source of temptations. The devil absolutely will use the temptations that we are tempted with that come from within. But he's not the primary source of those temptations. 
Of course, in one sense, he has a massive impact in the whole thing because Satan is manipulating the world. We're told in Scripture in Corinthians that he's the God of this world. That means he is laying a foundation around us that he wants to have us trip up and, and, and succumb to. And we see all the, 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 the bright lights of the city, for want of a better expression. Uh, all those things that, that Satan has managed to engineer and build up. And those are the things that get into our heads. And then those temptations come from those things. We'll talk more in a while. But, you know, ultimately, our hearts and minds are fertile soil where temptations can grow. That's why we need to be so, so careful of what we allow in. Again, it is why what may be a temptation to one person isn't a temptation to another. We, we all respond and act differently to different things. There are some things that are common. Uh, no temptation is unique in the, to any individual, but certain individuals will have a particular uh, challenge in a certain area, in a certain area they're tempted with, whereas another may not. You know, we're commanded to not go astray or wander is what James really reminds us of. And again, the temptations result in death progressively, starting as something that may seem possibly innocuous, but they grow, they, they fester, they, they start as like a small seed that then grows and becomes something very insidious. I want to just, just take a moment before we move on, just to talk a little bit about uh, what some biblical commentators call biblical psychology. Uh, and it's kind of understanding who we are. But I think this is quite helpful in understanding the the problem we have with temptations. Because as we're going to go into the next verse that we kind of left off from, uh, it simply says, um, uh, verse 16, which is where we'll pick up in a minute, do not err, my beloved brethren, or literally do not be deceived. In other words, understand what I've just told you about temptation. So let's just kind of remind ourselves a little bit about it. Well, biblically, the Bible tells us we're made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. The soul is the battleground. That's really us. The, the, the real person of us is made up of our heart and our mind. Our heart is the emotionally driven part of us. The mind is the intellectually driven part of us. But I want you to understand and be very clear that the mind is not the brain. Okay, your heart is not your brain. Your heart and your mind use your brain very much like a computer. Now, if we go to the uh, picture on the, the left of the screen there, you've got a picture of kind of the human head, the human brain. The brain is effectively a supercomputer. A computer on, on its own is not intrinsically bad. It's not sinful. It's not, uh, uh, immoral. It's simply amoral. It's just, it's just a device. It will do whatever you ask it to do. In a sense, your brain is not dissimilar. Now, a computer can be used for all sorts of things, good things, bad things. You can view positive things. You can listen to great Bible teaching. And yet a computer can also be used to view all sorts of things that are very unhelpful, very ungodly. And uh, you know where we're going. So, you know, there's a, a phrase with kind of uh, computer people called GIGO or literally garbage in, garbage out. OK, the idea is with a computer, whatever you put into it is typically what you'll get out of it. Now, it's the same with programming. Adrian, I'm sure, will talk to us or could talk to us a lot about this as a programmer. But if you don't put good information in, you're not going to get good information out. Now, your brain is like that. Your brain, of course, is fed by your ears and by your eyes and by your senses. And you feed your brain with all sorts of things. Now, sometimes... And uh, actually, I'm indebted to Marla uh, for this because we had a great conversation yesterday uh, and it actually helped me to clarify in my own head just a little uh, some of these things. But really what happens sometimes is that our brain feeds our heart and our mind 
with thoughts, with ideas, with pictures, with images, with things that we don't like, which are not helpful, which we recognize as being ungodly. It's not helpful when we dwell on those things. In fact, it can be very dangerous when we dwell on them, but it's not sinful that we're tempted. Okay, to clarify, let me give it to you this way. If the postman arrives at your door and puts something to your letterbox that is not nice, not not wholesome for whatever, um, the fact that it's come through your letterbox is not your fault. What you do with it is. Now, typically, if something came through your letterbox, you know, an unpleasant image or picture or whatever, or something that was just very worldly, whatever, you know, you have immediately the option of going and taking that and putting it in the bin. And that's exactly what we should do when thoughts come from our brain, which has been recipient to these ideas and the sounds of things we've heard, conversations we've heard people, words that people have said, um, yeah, and there's some filthy things that we get exposed to, uh, as we go about our daily lives. Even yesterday, uh, we had a lovely, uh, bike ride, uh, as a family. Uh, at one point we went past some people that were, were, were just shouting and swearing and, you know, they obviously thought it was fine and entertaining. Uh, it was, it was repulsive, but our brains hear those things. Now, Sometimes those things that we hear come back into our heads at other times. And sometimes it can be triggered by all sorts of different things. We sometimes see things. Maybe it's on the news. Maybe it's on programs or films that we watch. Uh, and those things can come back. And sometimes those things get joined together. And we have thoughts that we think, where did that thought come from? You have horrible thoughts. And all it is, is your brain is put together thoughts and ideas and images and pictures and so on. And they come from this natural body which is subject to the fall, subject to sin, and they get presented to us. A little bit like something being popped through your letterbox. Now, your heart and your mind have a choice about what you do with that. Now, scripturally, what we're to do is immediately take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Without wishing to derail the study, if you've got your Bibles, just turn with me to 2 Corinthians, and I want to just read to you what the Bible says about spiritual warfare, because this is what we're, we're dealing with here. And the warfare really takes place in our heart and in our mind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to pick it up at verse 3. I'm going to read this to you. It just says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. In other words, we're living in a fleshly body. We have a brain. We have these, these physical attributes. We have natural desires that our body will, our brain will tell us. Our brain will tell us if we're hungry. Uh, you know, our brain will tell us if, if there's another particular desire that for whatever reason wants to be satisfied or met. Okay. So the, that's the fleshly. Uh, and it says, but we don't war. We don't attack it in a fleshly way. There's a spiritual way we should respond. And it says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh, not of the world. We don't fight with, you know, knives and guns and bombs and so on. We, we, we fight with spiritual weapons. And we're told that those spiritual weapons are mighty. Okay. Let's just get that. The mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. They're not mighty in and of yourself, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, the question, of course, is what are strongholds? Well, we're told in the next verse, casting down, and here we go, imaginations. Where do they begin? Or effectively, they begin in your brain. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Everything that is popped through the letterbox of your, your mind, as it were, comes into your heart, into your mind, Everything that, that you get confronted with 
are those imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So we're told here to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And that's the key. When we're tempted, temptation itself is not wrong. You are going to be tempted. Your brain will throw things at you that you weren't anticipating, you weren't expecting. Your brain will respond to things that you have seen, that you've allowed in. Now, sometimes we will talk about in a moment that we need to be extremely cautious about what we do allow in, knowing that our brain is going to use these things and present them to us. But the real issue is our heart and our mind. Now, for many people, the problem we have is that the body takes precedence Our soul is where the battles fall and the spiritual side of us, the God consciousness part of us, is kind of like down on the list. What we need to do is reverse that. And Paul in the book of Romans chapter 12 says that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need to change the flow of of direction. Okay, so sorry, the direction of flow is what I'm trying to say. That's the right way of putting it. So that the flow doesn't come from our body into our heart and mind but from our spirit into our heart and mind and then that in turn will dictate how the body responds the problem most of us have is that the body is so um predominant that it dictate it dictates our actions and our heart and mind almost are held captive by these things well what we're to do is to bring any thought that is unholy unclean unhelpful whatever we bring it to god we bring it captive And we are to spend our time in godly things. And we'll come to these verses that James will give us in a moment. That the spirit part of us becomes the the dominant part. That we spend our time in fellowship, in prayers, breaking the bread, you know, in the word of God. All these things that the book of Acts tells us are essentials to the Christian life. That our God consciousness side of us, the spirit part of us, feeds our soul. And that will then have a direct impact upon our body. Okay, I hope that's helpful. We're going to come back to that in a while, but I just wanted to give you a quick kind of overview of what the Bible says. Now, the Bible does tell us, we looked at this last time as well, that if we overcome these temptations, if we are um, victorious, there is promised to us, James tells us, a crown of life. We went through in detail last time. Again, just a list of the five crowns that are mentioned in Scripture. Now, these may not be the only crowns that exist, but these are specific ones that the Bible does mention. Again, a crown of life, which is Paul talks about in Corinthians, really it's about running the, the race to win. It's living a disciplined Christian life with no compromise. Crown of life, as we've just said already, is overcoming temptation. The crown of rejoicing, winning souls for Christ. The pleasure and the joy that we have when souls come to know the Lord through our witness and ministry. Uh, And many of those we won't yet get to know. It won't be until we're in heaven or on the time of the rapture that we'll get to see those. As we are in the presence of the Lord, we'll look around and see people that we had opportunity to witness to. The crown of glory is promised to those who are faithful in ministry, the ministry God's called them to, and particularly the leaders within the fellowships and churches. Uh, and then the crown of righteousness, which is for those who are excited about Jesus' return, you know, that are really looking forward to his coming. And in a sense, are therefore sanctified, set apart. Okay, that's our introduction. Sorry, it's a long introduction, but hopefully it's a, a good recap of what we've looked at because it builds beautifully into where we're going. So we go then into verse 16 and it says, do not err my beloved brethren. Okay, James speaks of, to us now as brothers. He grew up in a family with at least four other brothers. Okay, oh, sorry, three other brothers. He was one of at least uh, one of four. So he knows what it's like to have brothers and he calls us brothers. 
my beloved brothers. He says, do not, uh, literally, don't be deceived. Or in the Greek, the idea is don't continue being deceived. You've been deceived up until this point. Your flesh life has been dominant in you. Now it's time to let the spirit life be the dominant factor. And also, don't blame God for temptations. Don't don't be deceived and say, God, why did you allow me to be tempted? Well, because God doesn't cause temptation. He, he's not the author of those things. We've been told already that we shouldn't even blame the devil because actually those temptations come from within. And let me remind you that Eve was tempted before she fell. She was in an unfallen state when that temptation first came. All right. She wasn't subject to a sinful fallen nature at that point. The temptation came before she fell. Now, it's interesting to note as well. When you look at the temptation in the wilderness in uh, Luke 4, it's given to us in detail there. The devil uses three specific challenges against Jesus. The first thing is the lust of the flesh. Jesus had been fasting, we know. And during that time, naturally, the body gets hungry. Uh, of course, God sustains, God provides. If you're fasting, God will always provide and sustain you. Um, but the the lust of the flesh is the first challenge that Satan brings. You know, look at the stones. Wouldn't you like to turn them into bread? You could turn them into bread, couldn't you, Jesus? I'm sure you're hungry. And that's where, where Satan will appeal. He'll appeal to the lust of the flesh. The second thing was the lust of the eyes. Again, takes him to the top of the temple. Look at all the, the, the kingdoms. Look at all these things. You know, uh, and it just, it just speaks about all, all the things that, that shows Jesus all the things that he could see. And so it's the second thing. I mean, we see this in the Garden of Eden as well. Of course, lust, uh, the lust of the flesh with Eve, the lust of the eyes, you know, the, the, the idea of eating the fruit. She looked at the fruit. It looked good to the, to the taste and so on. And then the final thing is the pride of life. As Satan tries to offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, if he will only worship him. Okay, uh, that that's the idea. You know, so we see these things played out. But one commentator I was listening to made this point. He said that is all the devil has. That's the best shot so he can give. You know, he he saved his best for when he was attacking Jesus. There's nothing else that he's going to attack you with that's not on this list. It will only be one of those three things: the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. All right. So if we're ready and we're we're trained in our battle against the enemy to deal with these things. When those things come at us, well, we'll be able to overcome because we'll know how to respond. Again, we need to understand that Satan will use, but is not the primary source of those things that come from our from our brain, effectively, from our flesh, from our body. We go on in verse 17, says every good gift. Now, this is in comparison. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. All right, so speaking about the, the bad stuff in a sense, but let's compare that now with all the good things. Every good gift that you have is from God. And it comes down from the Father of lights, we have this expression, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So you have a contrast given, okay, to the temptations here, which are apparent. By the way, yeah, this is it. The temptations are apparent shortcuts, legitimate things, but in an illegitimate way. Okay, that's what temptations, generally speaking, are. Jesus had been promised to sit upon the throne of David to rule over the entire world. Daniel makes that clear that he will rule over all nations. Psalm 2 tells us he'll rule all nations with a rod of iron. Satan comes and says, I'm going to give you a, a shortcut to rule over all nations if you just worship me. You see, what Satan offered wasn't in itself 
inappropriate. The way in which he was proposing was inappropriate. That in order to achieve that, Jesus would have to worship him. So many of the temptations that we face, that in a sense our flesh throws at us, they're not wrong in, in and of themselves, but it's the way in which they are being proposed that is the problem. And of course, any shortcut, any deviation from God's boundaries is where we cross that line and it becomes sin. Okay, so again, the things that God gives, they're true and they're pure. Now, we're told in Scripture that we must study to show ourselves approved. That's what Paul says to Timothy. In actual fact, the idea is not that we are study, we should study so that God approves us. That's not what it's saying. It's that we must study so that we show ourselves that we are actually approved of God. On uh, Thursday evening, we had a lovely Bible study in uh, Galatians talking about the fact that we are heirs. We have this incredibly privileged position that we've been given this right of inheritance in God. And really, the reason we study, we read scripture, we grow, is so that we recognize that we have been approved by God. Now, that changes things. We're not trying to achieve something. We have been given a position. And now all we have to do is walk in it, to walk by faith, to live out all that God has already put in. And that's why we're told that our minds must be renewed and transformed, as Paul says in Romans 12. And again, this verse, really, the contrast is between the father of lies and the father of lights. Okay, in John 10, uh, sorry, John 8, I believe it is. Um, we're told that the devil is a liar and has been from the beginning. He's the father of lies. But God, our father in heaven, is the father of lights. Uh, and, and this idea of lights and really speaking of the kind of the lights in the firmament. And obviously there is no shadow that the, the sun burns so brightly. But it's saying that with God, there is uh, no shadow of turning. The, the word that's used there, this idea of variableness. In the, the Greek is this parallage, or literally in the English we translate it is the word parallax. Um, now, some of you may be familiar, um, particularly with photography and so on. This is a, a principle that applies. The idea, and just to read this quote, is the effect by which the position of an object seems to change when it is looked at from different positions. And you can see in the little diagram that's there, if you're looking from viewpoint A through the object, the background is different than if you look at from from viewpoint b at the object okay and the idea is although the object is staying still sometimes it can appear to move depending on your vantage point well what james is telling us here is, is it tells us of his education in a sense that he understood these concepts but he's telling us that with god there is no changeableness you, whichever way you look, God is the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Whereas Satan will invent all sorts of different ways and change the terms in which he tries to present things to you. God will never do that. God is the same. The good gifts that come from God, they're not going to be presented differently. The gifts and callings of God, we're told, are without repentance or irrevocable. God will never change. It's a great comfort that we have when we go to God. We go on to the next verse, and it says, of his own will, I just carry on talking about this great God that we serve. Of his own will, he begat us. The idea, literally, is the, is the idea of a, of a mother bringing forth. Of his own will, he begat us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, of course, we know that Jesus was the first fruits of those that rose from the dead. 
And that he, as he was transformed in his physical body after he'd risen from the dead, his body no longer had blood, as he said on the, the evening of the resurrection. He handled me a seer. Spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see I have. Not flesh and blood, flesh and bone. Jesus' resurrected body was different. He was transformed. In Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that one day we will all be transformed and we will get heavenly bodies, eternal bodies, and so on. So, but he's telling us here that we should be the first fruits of his creatures. Now, that's true in terms of being resurrected, but it's also true in terms of the type of creation we are, being led of the spirit, not of the flesh. Go back to that diagram we spoke about, looked at a short while ago. All right. That we have to be driven by the spirit and not driven by the flesh. That we should be a first fruits of his creatures. And again, we've been begotten with the word. Uh, you know, the word is so, so important. We'll see James really hammer this point. Uh, the world was spoken into existence. It was the word that spoke the world into existence. And life began with the spoken word. You go back to Genesis and as God speaks, things are created. Trap, uh, back in the time of, or before the time of Spurgeon, made this comment. He said, the word properly signifies he did the office of a mother to us, the bringing us into the light of life. And that's what God has done. He's brought us out of darkness, as, as it were, in kind of the, the womb of the world, if you imagine it that way, but out into to life, to true life now. Verse 19 carries on. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Again, now starting to change the theme slightly, but really speaking about how we should uh, conduct ourselves as believers. So we've kind of moving on now from the whole idea of temptation to talking about the way that we deal with things. But even in this, there's an element of the fact that we are tempted sometimes to act rashly, hastily. We're sometimes prone to wrath. And that, again, all comes from the flesh. So it's just really building these kind of ideas as we go through. Again, Trapp says, uh, But have not nature taught us the same that the apostle does here, uh, or he does, by giving us two ears and those open, but one tongue, and that hedged in with teeth and lips. I love the expression. I'm sure you've heard it many a time. You know, that you have two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as you speak. Uh, and of course, it's great advice. We we hear it, we know it. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul said to Timothy there, the servant of the Lord must not strive, which is what James is saying. Don't don't get into to, to situations where wrath uh, becomes apparent and so on. You act hastily and rashly, but be gentle unto all men. Now, naturally, you struggle to do this, but if we are led of the spirit, if it's a spirit that's feeding our heart and mind, well, these become the way we should be. And by God's grace, we can live like that. And we're told we should be apt to teach and patient. Okay, this is all the work of the Holy Spirit. That, that phrase, apt to teach, um, this is to Dave Shirley, um, pastor of the Calvary Chapel Bible College in Murrieta in America. Uh, he's a good Greek scholar. And uh, he highlighted this once to me, that that phrase, apt to teach, literally means teachable. Okay, it's not saying the servant of the Lord should be able to teach. I mean, there's an element of the truth in that as well. But this verse really is telling us this expression is saying that we should be teachable. You know, whatever stage you are in your Christian life, you should be willing to grow and learn. Never closed and hardened to other views or possibilities. Obviously, everything is filtered through scripture. But we should always be teachable, willing to listen, which is what James is saying. Uh, in Proverbs 25, verse 4, it says, Go not forth hastily to strive, lest thou know not what to do in the end thereof, when thy neighbor has put thee to shame. In other words, just be a little bit cautious. You know, sometimes there's situations and we can get riled and we can act very rashly and hastily, but we need to be patient. 
We need to consider our actions and our responses to situations because naturally we will default to the flesh position which is why we again need to be filling our minds with the spiritual uh, side of things so verse 20 carries on for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of god it's kind of a simple expression look that the natural way of dealing with things is not the spiritual way of dealing things god's ways are not our ways god's ways are above our ways and if we are to walk with him then our ways need to become as his ways are and that, that is not acting rashly, not just responding uh, in wrath. Again, what do we think we will accomplish by wrath? If we stop and think about it, what good will us becoming angry in a situation actually accomplish or achieve? You know, one commentator, I quite like this. He said, I've seldom regretted things I didn't say. And I love that because actually, you know, sometimes we say things and think, oh, I really wish I hadn't said that. But truthfully, how many things have you not said and then regretted it? Now, there will be an element that sometimes we think I should have said something there. Of course, that's true. But generally speaking, we don't we don't feel bad about things that we we didn't say, because, you know, once you say something, it's gone past your lips. You can't bring it back. It's too late. Of course, this is part of what James is trying to communicate to us here. Uh, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness. A superfluity of naughtiness. What a great King James expression that is. And receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, very simply, that word superfluity, it just means an overflow. Super being great, big, whatever. And fluity, the idea of fluid. Uh, it's just simply an overflow. And some translations translate it exactly as that. An overflow of wickedness. Okay, it says naughtiness. Uh, we don't tend to use the word naughty unless we're in, in terms of t- speaking to small children. Um, but we understand the idea. It's speaking of an overflow of wickedness. That there shouldn't be these things. Uh, again, it's quite graphic, but Trapp says this, uh, the stinking filth of a persistent ulcer. Sin is the devil's vomit, the soul's excrement, the superfluity or garbage of naughtiness or wickedness, as it is here called by an allusion to the garbage of the sacrifices cast into the brook Kidron. Uh, that is the town ditch. Now, you may remember the Kidron, the valley uh, of uh, in, in Jerusalem, where all the, the rubbish was thrown, all the, the bits were, were, were dumped in that place and so on. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the idea of all these things. And it's saying that, you know, we've got to lay apart. I, I love this expression again, lay apart. Literally separate yourself from. Uh, it's interesting if you want to do a little study on the number of times, just go and look at the, the Greek word for that lay apart uh, and look at the places it occurs in Scripture. It's quite interesting. I'm not going to go through it this morning. Uh, but you see a number of references to separating yourself. Uh, it's the idea when Paul was cast out of the city and dragged and left for dead that's the idea literally making a separation between point a and point b and that's what we're told to do to lay apart all these things to separate ourselves from them and notice again the statement that we've got here uh, and receive with meekness so just again think of that diagram shit earlier you've got the brain the natural the flesh on one side and then you've got the spirit on the other and your heart and mind are in the middle. And it's saying you should separate yourself from all the worldly stuff, all those thoughts and ideas that come from the world. And you should embrace, receive with meekness the engrafted word. And it, we're told what a statement this is, which is able to save your souls. Do you know the word of God saves you? It's such a, a, a staggering statement to a world that is looking for all sorts of ways to get right with God or their version of God or whatever else. But the word of God itself has the power to transform and save. 
the word is so so important of course the word is just really symbolic of the 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 living word jesus christ himself and again we just go back to this the idea is again that we feed our spirits so that the influences come into our heart and mind from godly sources and not from the things that we pick up from the world and when we do have those things those temptations that will come from the world you know what to do with them immediately you go and bin them you separate yourselves from them okay that's exactly what james is telling us Verse 22, then we go on and says, but be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Very simple, uh, practical statement. Don't just believe it, do it, put it into practice. You know, it's not really faith. And James is going to build on this in the the subsequent chapter. So I'm not going to spend too long on this now. But, uh, you know, you don't want to just say, yes, I believe it. It's got to be seen by the way you conduct yourself. Don't just be doers of the word. Uh, so be do so be doers of the word and not hearers only it's like this morning don't just listen to these things and go oh okay that was good you know go out and make sure this applies to your life think through how this should impact you what you need to do to separate from the worldly influences and make sure you're getting the godly influences because i guarantee you if you don't you will be pulled by the things of the world there is this tug of war going on paul says basically the same thing that we are pulled to and fro that our our natural that our wishes are never free from these pressures is a paraphrase of what paul actually says that you have a tug of war the spirit pulling you one way the world pulling you the other and you're in the middle. Now, you need those influences that come from God. David Guzik, in his uh, commentary, just made this quote. He said, uh, Jesus used this same point to conclude his great sermon on the Mount. He said that the one who heard about the word without doing it was like a man who built his house on the sand. But the one who heard God's word and did it was like a man whose house was built on a rock. The one who both heard and did God's word could withstand the inevitable storms of life and the judgment of eternity. It speaks for itself. Spurgeon, in the response to this verse, said this, I fear we have many such in all congregations, admiring hearers, affectionate hearers, attached hearers, but all the while unblessed hearers, because they are not doers of the word. You know, it's no good listening to me, listening to any other, other teachers you choose to listen to. You know, I encourage you to go to some great Bible teachers, particularly some of the Coward Chapel teachers, um, really solid Bible teaching. You know, just just enjoy and fill your hearts and your houses with the, with the sound of the, the, the teaching of God's word. You know, but unless you go and do it, really doesn't avail you much you know it's got to you've got to put it into practice you can't just hear something and i can understand it intellectually it's got to make that drop from the mind into the heart and become something that's real to you verse 23 for if any be a hearer of the world and not a doer he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or literally a mirror for he beholding himself and goeth his way and straight away forgetteth what manner of man he was. He said, you know, you look at yourself in a mirror and then you walk away. I can't, what did I look like? I can't remember what I looked like. You know, David Guzik made this comment. The ancient Greek word translated beholding has the idea of a careful scrutiny. By application, James had in mind people who gave a careful scrutiny of God's word. They may be regarded as Bible experts, but it still doesn't result in doing. See, again, just becoming competent in your understanding of the Bible doesn't change you if you don't allow it to impact your actions, the way that you go about living your lives. It needs to have that actual practical uh, outworking in you. 
Spurgeon said this again, the glass of the word word sorry is not like our ordinary looking glass which merely shows us our external features but according to the greek of our text the man sees in it the face of his birth that's the implication here in the greek that is the faith face of his nature he that reads and hears the word may see not only his actions there but his motives his desires his inward condition the word of god is so helpful at allowing us to see what we're really like Okay, it's interesting that when you go back to the Old Testament, you look at the laver, this big bronze um, dish, bowl, bath, basically, is a huge thing that was built for the priests to wash him before they went and ministered. It's symbolic of the word of God. And we see a number of allusions to that through scripture. But what's fascinating is that the laver was made out of the mirrors of the ladies that had brought those mirrors with them out of Egypt. They brought these bronze mirrors that were reflective pieces of metal. And all those things are melted down and they're made into the laver, which is where the priests wash. They wash literally in a um, Old Testament version. They they, they're washing in the, the water of the word, effectively. They're putting themselves in a position where it's reflective. It shows them as they are. They can see the dirt on themselves. That's what the word of God does. The laver is a great example of that, that we need to wash in the word, in a sense, before entering in and serving God and coming into God's presence. The word is such a great cleansing agent to us. Verse 25, we carry on. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty. Uh, we could probably spend a morning on that expression, the perfect law of liberty. And I continue therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now, let me just ask you this, this question. You know, do we study God's word like we study our own appearance? Now, for each of us, I guess it's different. Um, but, you know, let me ask you in this way. Do you spend as much time in God's word as you do in front of the mirror? Think how much time you spend on a daily basis. You know, whether you're male or female, we all spend time in front of the mirror, whether you're a man, whether it's shaving, whether it's doing your hair, whatever, with the ladies, you're doing your makeup and all the things. You know, how much time do you spend in front of the mirror, which only impacts your outward appearance, your outward beauty? What about the time we spend in God's word, which impacts our inward beauty? It'd be really interesting just to keep a little log. Maybe you could do as a little personal challenge this week. Keep a log of how much time you spend looking in the mirror. Just make a note of the time and just, just keep a log during the week. Just as a fun exercise. Don't have to tell me. We don't have to share with everybody. But just for your own benefit. And then compare that with how much time you spend in God's word. And see whether we're spending more time on the outward appearance or the inward. Because, of course, the outward isn't going to actually change us. All it does, you know, you, you, you might look good, but that's only going to last a day. And then you sleep and you wake up and you don't look as good as you did the night before, the day before. So you have to start all over again. But, you know, the word of God transforms you. And, you know, with Moses, that radiance he had when he came down the mountain after being in God's presence, that's the kind of radiance that can come forth from the life of a believer if we are in God's word. It just overflows. It radiates. Uh, Marla was doing some homework this week. As uh, we've been working, Marla's been in the office with me here as I've been working uh, my, my work. Um, but she was doing some work on radiation and heat and how heat is transferred and so on. You know, but literally we radiate God's love and God's light to other people if we've allowed it in in the first place. But we need to allow God's word in. And again, you don't do that by spending your time doing all sorts of other things. You need to make sure that God's word is a priority for you as a believer. 
Okay, so last couple of verses. If any man among you seems to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but, dece- uh, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Now, we're not going to spend too long on this because when we get to chapter three, James is really going to pick this one, this one up and hammer it. And again, another one of those natural worldly examples we'll talk about horses. And the, the allusion here, again, uh, bridleth not his tongue. Uh, and it's in uh, chapter uh, three that James will get to to make this point uh, about the way that bits and bridles are put in the mouths of horses to to steer them to turn them and talks about ships and about rudders on the ships and how they can steer this incredibly large vessel uh, and he says about the tongue being the same so we'll, we'll deal with that in a bit more detail we all know the situation though you know that if we're not careful with our tongue if we don't think about what we're going to say if we don't think about the impact or import of what we're saying and how it'll affect other people's lives we can do a lot of damage and actually our religion isn't true it's not genuine you know it's not is it's, it's, that religion is in vain if we just go and undo all that we're supposed to be building we start tearing down by things we say because we weren't thinking and there's no excuse as a believer we need to be very cautious about what we say and notice the expression you deceive your own heart see there is a danger even with the heart and mind that we can allow ourselves to be deceived so we need to be so careful and make sure we always have that godly spiritual check to where we are, to what we, the positions we hold. And then we conclude, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. It's, it's interesting. If I may just pick up the point here. The James says that pure religion undefiled before God and the Father. Now, maybe a, a deeper study of the Greek will, will tell otherwise, but I think what James is saying here is that Jesus is God. This is a statement of his brother, according to the flesh, is God. The pure and undefined religion before Jesus and the Father, before God and the Father, Jesus is God. James knew by this point that Jesus was God. And it's just a great statement of Christ's deity. Pure religion, okay? So that which is pure, it, 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 it's without offence, it's as it should be. It's the perfect form of religion and undefiled, not tainted by the things of the world, not twisted, not bent in any way. Before God and the Father is this. And this is what we're told, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. It's immediately speaking of a practical response to the hope and the faith that is with them. And so there's the first part and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, last week I mentioned this verse because we've just gone through six weeks, seven weeks, whatever, I've lost count, of lockdown. To remain unspotted from the world, to remain separate from coronavirus so that we don't pick it up and catch it. Because otherwise we might pass it on to others. There's a great spiritual lesson in this for us because James is saying we need to keep, if our religion is to be true, we've got to remain unspotted. You know, the great lengths that we've gone to as individuals, and yes, I know the government has kind of put these dictates in place and there's been some laws passed that potentially the police could arrest you if you're out, but it hasn't potentially stopped anybody leaving their homes. Okay, well... But we've still, nearly all of us, as far as I'm aware, we've maintained this. We've chosen to do it. Why? Because we recognize the benefit of remaining unspotted from coronavirus. All right. This verse is saying that there is a bigger and greater, more lethal threat to each one of us than coronavirus. And the danger is not only we can contract and so on, but we can pass that on. And that is that ungodliness that can pervade our hearts and our minds. And that can impact other people. In fact, within a body, 
it can be very divisive and very dangerous. And Paul makes the point quite clearly that when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers with it. So we need to be aware that when you contract sin in terms of allowing temptation dwelling on temptation those things that that you uh, that are coming into your heart and mind through the flesh when those things are dwelt upon they will impact other people you immediately infect others if you allow that in your heart because it will affect your attitude your responses your reactions you will speak hastily you'll stop listening you will speak in wrath and the things you say will be damaging and you know we could go on and on So we understand just from this very practical demonstration that we've got going on in our lives right now, what it's like to remain unspotted and the lengths we need to go to. Well, let us try and make the same lengths on a spiritual level. Let us go to the same extreme at making sure we don't get contaminated by the things of the world, that we keep ourselves away from the things that would cause problems, that would put things into our flesh, into our mind, into our our brain, that our brain will then later throw out Uh, unexpected times then become problems for us okay so use this as a great example of how we need to to be really serious about being unspotted from the world and just to conclude this really is a summary of the greatest commandment you know jesus was asked that question you know by one of the the religious leaders what is the greatest question one of the lawyers came to him and said what is the greatest commandment of the law and jesus said it's this it's in mark 12 29 you know to to love the lord god with all your heart your soul your mind and your strength and the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself well that's summarized in this verse because james says pure religion is to love your neighbor as yourself to, to look after people practically do things to help them and secondly to love the Lord your God more than you love anything in this world. To love him with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, and with your strength. That's you. Okay, so again, you've got the physical, which are the, the worldly, the brain, which will throw all sorts of things in. And then you're on the other side, you've got the spiritual element, which we need to be sowing to, to allow that to influence us. In the middle, you are there and you have to make these decisions. And James is saying that our lives should be so transformed by the things of God, by knowing who he is, by recognizing Not just as James knew that he was his brother, but he's our brother. We've been called brethren. We've been invited into this family. We've been adopted by God. And we've been given this great inheritance. We'll build on it more as we go in next week. So let's just bow our hearts. Just read ahead, by the way, uh, chapter 2. We'll be into chapter 2 next week. I don't know how much of it we'll do. We'll leave it to the Lord. But uh, just read chapter 2 in preparation for next week. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for... This word, Lord, this word that is able to save us. Uh, and Father, we need saving, not just the spiritually uh, the, saving us from the wrath of God. Lord, we know that work was accomplished on Calvary. And we thank you for that. But Lord, saving us from those uh, insidious things that come from our flesh, the things that are unhelpful, the things that we've picked up from the world. Oh, Lord, help us, as your word says we should, as Paul says we should, to sow to the spirit and reap everlasting life. Lord, not sowing to the flesh and reaping corruption. Lord, help us to to remember that those temptations come from within. And so, Lord, we need to put within, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that all that is within is godly, it's holy, it's pure. And then, Lord, let us live it out. Let us not just believe and, and have this great hope and faith, but, Lord, let it be seen by the way that we live, by the actions that we take, by the things we do to help and care and support each other. And Lord, by the the things we say, by Lord, learning to be listeners more than just speakers who just keep ranting on and saying, Lord, help us to learn 
and to listen to each other. And Lord, most importantly, to listen to you. We just thank you for these things now. May we keep growing in grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.